Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. It's the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. We have been, as you know, working through a shorter series here on the nature of mission and discipleship. And so we've been spending some time over the past few weeks in this very important passage. Uh, in fact, it's safe to say it's probably the most definitive passage in all of Scripture when it comes to the topic of discipleship. And so in light of uh, preaching through Luke chapter 5 and, of course, coming to that section where Jesus gathers his very first disciples there to follow him on mission, um, we've been reminding ourselves of what exactly that mission is. And so as you've been seeing, this is a radical call. It's a very intentional way of life. In fact, one that considers or requires a genuine self-examination. It's a call, as we've been seeing, to lay down our previous pursuits It's a call to lay down our former identity, our former passions. It's a call to die to self in a daily manner. It is a call in the words of Jesus to leave everything and follow him. Simply put, the mandate of Jesus is to pick up his baton and then carry on that very same mission which he began nearly 2,000 years ago. In fact, this is what it means to be bought by him. It's what it means to no longer be a slave to sin and self, but a slave to Jesus Christ. In fact, the reality of the Christian life, as you know, is that you are now owned completely by another. You are not your own, but you have been bought with a price, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We've been bought with a price, and therefore we are to now glorify God with our entire existence. In fact, as many of you know, Paul himself was a man who understood the gravity and the significance of such a life-altering calling. Paul was a man on mission. Paul was a man completely gripped and consumed by the highest calling that could be placed on any human being. In fact, just listen to some of the experiences of Paul as he laid down his life, both both figuratively and also ultimately literally, for the sake of this mission. And so he's writing here to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and and he's comparing himself to some of these false teachers, these false apostles who have crept into the church. And what's interesting is that in order to to validate his apostleship here to the, the Corinthians and actually defend his apostleship where he's being attacked, what's interesting is that he doesn't point to any of his victories, but only to his hardship. And so why would he point to his sufferings? Why would he point to his hardship? Why wouldn't he point to his victories? Why wouldn't he point to things like miracles? Why wouldn't he point to those things which the world or perhaps even those in the church might see as somehow the evidence that God is truly with him? That he is God's man. Because Paul understood himself, listen, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 
And so what's it mean to be a follower? What's it mean to be a disciple? Well, it means that you now walk in their steps. You follow in their place. And so whatever was their experience, then by definition, it is now yours. It's going to be yours. And so Jesus' life, make no mistake, was a life defined in many ways by conflict and opposition and suffering and hardship. This was his life. This was his experience. And why? Why was that the case? Well, because of the mission. It was because of the mission. And so Paul now takes up, as he takes up the baton of his Lord and and master, just listen to some of these experiences that became his reality. In fact, once he became a disciple, many things changed for him almost instantly, almost immediately. And so he states in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, these words, and in contrast to these false apostles who aren't true followers of Jesus Christ, he states, are they, that is these false prophets, servants of Christ? Well, I more so. And why? Well, for I have been in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. The night and the day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. And I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. What a pastor. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Eratos, the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes. And why? Well, in order to seize me. But I was let down in the basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. And so this was his life. This is what it means to follow Christ. This is what it means to be on mission. And we may not suffer to the extent of the apostle here, but, but he was also a man so completely consumed by the reality of the gospel. And so there is a direct correlation between our suffering and our hardship and the degree that we are gripped and therefore faithful to the mission. And that's what I want us to understand. That's just a reality that's true for the entire history of of Christendom. The greater you're consumed, the greater you're gripped, the greater you're controlled by a passion for the spread of the gospel will be to the degree that you experience hardship. That's just a great truth of biblical theology. And so Paul was a man utterly consumed, so gripped, so controlled by this calling That even in the face of that kind of hardship and that kind of suffering, he could also say this in Acts chapter 20 and verse 24, these words, but I do not count my life as of any value or count it as dear to myself. And why? Why do I think this way? Why do I no longer view my life as of any value? Well, in order, in order that I may finish my course. Just think about that statement, that in order to finish his course, it is to die still believing 
And the prerequisite, or in other words, that which is required is that he must first regard his life as of zero value. That in order to just finish the race, I must count my life as nothing and completely die to self. That's the requirement. That's the prerequisite to even finishing. What's the implication of that? Well, that if you don't do this, then you don't finish the race. So do not count my life as of any value. And why? Well, so that I may finish my course or finish the mission entrusted to me and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus. And what was that ministry? Well, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And so what I want us to understand about this, I know that Paul was an apostle. I know he was a unique person raised up by Christ for very specific tasks, namely the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles in the very beginning of the church. But what I want us to understand is that you and I have been called to this very same task. This very same task. Paul was given the exact commission as the 11 in the Great Commission here in Matthew chapter 28. And so the point to understand is that now as followers, 2,000 years later, we have been commissioned to carry on this very same ministry as, as the 11 and the apostle himself. We are to be, as Paul says here in Acts chapter 20, testifying solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And yet this is the task that created the suffering. It's the task that brought such opposition in the life of Jesus, in the life of the 11, in the life of, of so many Christians throughout the history of, of the church. And so this is now our task. This is why we're here. This is why Jesus has left us and, and what he prayed for in John 17, just hours before his arrest. He prayed that the Father not take us out of the world, but leave us in the world. And so we have been saved, but we have been saved to be sent. We have been redeemed, but to bring the message of redemption to this world. And so this is what we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks. I want us to catch a vision for our purpose. I want us to be consumed by the fact that in Jesus Christ, we have obtained a new identity and therefore an entirely new purpose. We do not exist for ourselves. Rather, we exist exclusively for the spread of this gospel. And so two sermons ago, I said that in 2020, I want us as a church to number one, rest in Jesus' authority. Number two, to trust in Jesus' method. And then number three, to bank on Jesus' promise to provide us in whatever we might need for faithfulness to this call. And all those came directly from this passage here in Matthew 28. And so starting last time, we dove a little bit further into the second point here, which is the strategy of Jesus Christ. Namely, that he is going to build his church and he is going to expand his kingdom, but he's going to do it through a very specific method, a very specific strategy, which of course is through this, this concept here of making disciple, making disciples. And so that's his method. That's his approach to, to multiplication and the expanse of, of the kingdom. And so we live in an age of techniques. We live in an age of programs, an age in which the church is consumed, it seems, with innovation and in various approaches to trying to make Jesus somehow attractive. But the only method that he will bless is that of making disciples. 
And so we are not called to make converts. We are called to make disciples. And so in light of that, we began by looking at how a disciple is made. And, and so I know that you know this by now, and based off these words of Jesus here, but a disciple is made through three essential components. In fact, they're so essential that without them, a disciple cannot be made. And so the first one, as we saw in verse 19, is that we must go. Notice we must go, and so this is where we spent all of last time, but we must go. And so if you missed that sermon, then please go back and listen to it, but it's where all true discipleship must begin. This is where it must begin, and so if we don't make our time or intentionally create the space, which, which might require radical, risky decisions to make that space, then discipleship will not happen. This is where it must begin. It must begin through an intentional self-examination where we have to ask ourselves, number one, where are we going? Number two, to whom are we going? And then number three, how are we going? Where are we going? To whom are we going? And how are we going? And so Jesus says that the first element that must be present in your life and mine is that we must go. We must go. And so anyone who would call themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ must ask the question of how is going a daily reality in their life. Very important. In fact, critical for faithfulness to the mission. And so the very first step is going, but then the second is baptism, verse 19. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because... We understand this. We understand this concept. We understand the importance of, of making a public declaration of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. In fact, this is especially important during times, historically speaking, of persecution. One of Jesus' methods here for, for getting a person to first count the cost is to identify themselves as a follower in the face of, of public persecution through the public act of baptism. And so unless you count the cost and you're willing to lay down your life figuratively and maybe even physically for the sake of the gospel and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord, then he says, and you cannot be my disciple. And so the act of baptism or that public declaration of the lordship of Jesus Christ over everything, especially in times of hardship, is part of Jesus' divine strategy for making true disciples. A disciple is one who has counted the cost and willing to forsake anything for the sake of mission. So it's a very important step, vital to making a disciple. And so number one, we must go. Number two, we must baptize. This is just review. And then number three, verse 20, we must teach. We must teach. And so this is where we're going to spend our time here this morning. And this is the final principle, the final component that must be done if we're to faithfully make disciples. And so I quoted it a couple of weeks ago, but again, it's such an important quote, I think, for our context right now. But the reason, is, as one man said, that so many are leaving the church is because we're more concerned, historically speaking, especially in the West, but we're more concerned about conversion than we are about discipleship. We are more concerned about membership than maturity. And so this is where this third principle comes into play, and so it's so important, and yet, and yet sadly miss it. Many miss it. Many people miss this. Many churches miss it. The sad effect is that it's produced, I think, some devastating consequences, not only in terms of the church at large, but it all, also argue that, that missing this component has been enormously damaging to many individuals who claim to follow Jesus Christ. 
I think that just from a pastoral perspective, that a refusal on the part of many pastors and churches to adhere to this command of Jesus here to teach disciples, to teach his word, to teach his commands, to teach and instruct in the full counsel of God has produced some very destructive things. And so I just want to spend some time on this this morning to develop this a little bit. And for those of you who are newer and, and haven't been with us as long, this will hopefully give you a better sense of why we do what we do and and maybe at times why we don't do what we don't do. And so before we jump into that and start exploring the concept, let me just one more time read this passage for us, and then we'll take it from there. So again, that's Matthew chapter 28. And this is what's formally referred to, as you know, as the Great Commission, starting in verse 16. Matthew records these words. He says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated, And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. Such an encouraging word. Some worshiped and yet some were doubtful. Remember, this isn't doubt at who he is or doubt at the fact that he has risen from the dead. This is our fourth encounter with the resurrected Christ. Rather, this is a doubt. This is a doubt now in light of what the implications of a resurrected Christ must now mean for them. And so in light of that doubt, Jesus comes up and says these words. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, so don't doubt. Verse 19, go now, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So again, three principles here. I know that you know this. We have go, baptize, and teach, all supporting, explaining, or expanding upon how a disciple is to be made, which is the main command. Now, again, when it comes to these principles, they're, they're rather broad. Now, baptism, of course, not so much, but, but certainly going and teaching are somewhat broad. And they're somewhat broad, as, as we've been seeing on purpose. They're broad, in fact, so that they might have a wide range of application and be able to be lived out, actually, in multiple contexts, and so in light of focusing on this final principle, notice how this principle here of teaching is unqualified. And so notice end of verse 20, it's not just teaching, but teaching what? Well, first, teaching to observe or, or to keep and, and protect or do, sometimes it's translated as obey. So teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded. And so the focus of the teaching then is to be on the teaching of the commands of Jesus Christ. Nearly 300 of them all throughout the Gospels. But then second notice, it's not just teaching of the commands, but but there's that very important qualifier. It's a teaching of them to observe all that I have commanded them. So not just the fun things, not just the interesting things. And I know that you know this, but it's not just the sort of things that we like to hear, maybe want to hear, or the things that will sort of meet us in the moment, which is so much of Christianity these days. A lot of self-help, a lot of therapeutic approaches to preaching. In fact, if you were to remove many of the Bible verses and many of the sermons that are preached across the evangelical world, even this morning, in, all, in many cases, it would not change the sermon. It would not change the meaning of, of what was preached. And why? Why is that the case? Well, because the sermon's not been built upon the Word of God alone. It's not been built upon the Word of God alone, where the goal, and, and this is the job description of pastors, where the goal is to simply instruct from a clear explanation of the meaning of a text. That is our job, where we are to systematically, this is how we do it here, hopefully week after week, lay out the word of God, the commands of Christ, the full truth of God's revelation. 
In fact, it's why there's so much biblical illiteracy these days, despite the fact that we're such a spiritual nation. There are many churches filled with many self-proclaimed Christians every single week, and yet they do not bring a Bible. They do not know their Bible. They can quote maybe a few verses, usually out of context. And I'm not trying to be critical. It's just the sad reality of the state of the church. And so the Christian church, especially in the West, is very much in a crisis very much in a crisis. And why? Well, because somewhere along the way, the church has become more concerned with conversion, keeping people in the seats, giving a Sunday morning experience, and people feeling affirmed in their life decisions than they have been with discipleship and maturity. And so again, nowhere, anywhere has Jesus called us to ever make a convert. You will find that nowhere in the scriptures. Yet time and time again, he calls us to make disciples, to make mature followers of him. And so two very different things. These are very different things. A convert or someone who merely professes Christ or makes a decision for Christ is not the same thing as a person who's now progressively or little by little growing in holiness and becoming more and more conformed into the image of, of Jesus Christ as they take up his cause and his mission. Very different things. And so what it means to be a discipler is that you're now in some way actively engaged in the process of teaching somebody obedience to Christ. That's the goal. That's the mandate of Jesus himself. If you're to faithfully carry out this commission. And on the flip side of that, then what it means to be a disciple is that you've in some way oriented your life in your heart, but under the instruction and the teaching of the one who is now discipling you in those commands. You are submitting your entire person to what's being taught. And so again, this isn't self-help. This isn't therapy. This isn't some kind of religious improvement, spiritual improvement. This isn't spiritual guidance, helping someone to become more spiritually in sync with whatever, maybe whomever they understand God to be. Rather, it's something very explicit, very clear, and that is that a disciple is to be a teacher of the commands of Jesus Christ. They're to teach the commands, which of course are found exclusively, as you know, in the word of God alone. They're found in the word of God alone, which, which then, as you know, implies as well that a faithful disciple then has to be one grounded and also one knowing very well the truth of God's word. They can handle the word. They can faithfully instruct in a right understanding of this word. In fact, as you know, this is why at this church, all we have, all we have is the word of God for you. We tend to just take books of the Bible, passages of the Bible, and begin to systematically unfold them before your eyes. We seek to point out to you words and phrases and clauses of a, of a particular text. Pretty boring stuff. We are very intentional in doing that. And again, why? Well, because our goal isn't to give you an experience where, where we gather on a Sunday morning and, and, and feel an experience, which is something that's very temporary, very fleeting, won't survive you past lunch. Rather, we want to give you a clear understanding of the meaning of God's word. And because as we understand the word, we can then obey this word. That is the goal. If we don't understand the word or we don't know what it means, or we don't even know the fullness of, of what's contained in the word, then the question is, how can we say that we truly follow it? How can we say that we're truly a disciple of Christ if what a disciple means, again, by definition, according to this text, is that we're in the active state of obeying him? 
And so the question is, how do we obey that which we don't know? That's the question. How do we follow Jesus if we don't truly know what he's asked of us? And again, not not just obeying on some things or in in some areas of life, but again, in all that he's instructed us. Verse 20, again, the word all is a very important qualifier in this great commission. And so again, why do we do this? Why is systematically preaching through the scriptures our approach? Well, because the clear instruction of Jesus Christ and his final word and his final mandate before he ascends into heaven was to make disciples. And again, how do you make a disciple? Well, by teaching them to observe. Again, that's a present tense participle, meaning it's to be an ongoing reality, but teaching them to obey everything that I have said, teaching them to conform their life to all of my instruction. In fact, this is why Paul in Acts chapter 20, right after those words I read earlier, in fact, turn there with me, can if you quickly, Acts chapter 20. It's a very important concept or passage for this concept. Acts chapter 20 and starting in verse 24, Paul says these words, he says, but I do not consider my life as of any value. And again, why? Well, in order that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. And again, what was that ministry? Well, it's the same ministry that you and I have been given. And so notice, it is to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And then he explains what he means by that. Verse 26, therefore, so in light of what I just said, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. And so why are you innocent, Paul? That's a big statement. Why are you innocent? Why are you going to be held by God as not guilty for failing in your mission, even if they choose to reject Jesus Christ, even if they disobey his word? Verse 27, and, and this is the key. Well, for I did not shrink away from declaring to you, and here it is, the entire counsel of God. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What's he saying? What's his point? Well, his point is that he has been faithful to Matthew chapter 28. Paul's men ferocious about the Great Commission. So what he understood, which is what I want us to understand, is that what it means to be a faithful discipler is that we have to teach our disciples the entire counsel of God. The entire counsel of God, especially, and hear me on this, especially the difficult things. In fact, when Jesus says to teach him in Matthew chapter 28, he doesn't say teach him doctrine or intellectual truth. But notice to teach him to learn how to obey the commands, right? Which, which by definition are, are difficult. And why? Well, because it's not just, just knowledge that we got to ascend to, but rather a way of life that we now have to submit to. It's not just ascending to a knowledge. It's, it's submitting our life to certain things. Which, of course, is what makes it so difficult at times. And so, listen, calling someone to obey implies, and, and, and this is what's important, calling somebody to obey implies that in some way they're still lacking something, right? Why else would you call them to obey? And so there is an element of confrontation when you call somebody to obey, which, again, is what makes it so difficult. It's why so many reject. In fact, notice Paul here. He says, I did not shrink. I did not shrink. It's the implication of that kind of imagery, 
Why is he phrased it that way? Well, the implication is that there are many difficult things in Scripture, which is, is where the Word of God or the, or the counsel of God is found, but there are many hard sayings, especially of Jesus, that we are going to be constantly tempted to soft pedal. Constantly. Because we don't like confrontation. We don't like exposing people where they fall short. We don't like calling them to step up and obey. It does not make friends. And so there's nothing pleasant about telling people unpleasant things. There's nothing particularly happy about calling someone to repentance and faithfulness. It's a good work, but it's not a happy work. There's nothing particularly happy about pointing out their sin, about pointing out their disobedience at times of the commands of Jesus Christ. But listen, if all you ever do is talk about, and I want to minimize this, but if all you ever do is just talk about the love of God, and that he wants your best, and that he loves you and has a wonderful plan for you, which a little fill up churches while it keeps people in the seats. It makes people feel like they're truly following after Jesus. It is an incredibly dangerous compromise because while many think that they're following him, the reality is that they have been robbed from understanding the full counsel of God and therefore robbed of that which is essential to becoming a true disciple and therefore robbed of God's mean, hear me on this, God's means for finishing the race. So we have to teach the full counsel of God. In fact, eternal life depends on this. Eternal life is dependent on this because listen, it's not about just quote, getting people saved or getting them into a church. Rather, this is all about progressive or little by little, progressive sanctification and therefore dying or finishing your life while still believing. We are not calling people to just make a decision for Jesus. We are not calling them to raise their hands or vaguely commit to him. We are not calling them to learn or conform to a certain form of religion. Rather, we are calling them to lay down their life, follow after Jesus, walk in his steps of suffering, carry out his mission and his task, and finish the race. That's what we're doing. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is when we instruct them in the full truth of what God has revealed through his word of what that race is to look like. This is his means of causing a person to run their course, to persevere, to finish in faith and die well. And we have to teach all that Christ has commanded. And I know that you know this. But to be honest, it involves many hard sayings, is it not? There are many hard sayings in Scripture, but we cannot shrink from declaring to you the entire counsel of God, not if we're going to be faithful. And so what it means to be a faithful disciple is that you then seek to put yourself into a position where you can learn and be instructed in the fullness of what God has said. So this is critical. This is absolutely necessary if a person is to grow in their walk with Jesus Christ their faithfulness to him will only rise to the level of their knowledge and what he has said. And so the final principle here, which again is, is essential to the Great Commission, is that we must be about the task of teaching people the full counsel of God, but again, so that they might faithfully live out everything that Christ has instructed. And so in light of that, what is this then to look like? 
This is where I'm going to go with this. How does this work itself out? Is this something reserved for the pulpit? Is this just something reserved for the classroom? You have to get formal training before you can do this. You have to get certified to do this. Can this only happen as the church gathers at large? Can it happen one-on-one? Should it happen in formal settings? Is it better done in informal settings? Well, again, here's where the broadness of, of the principle comes into play. And again, there's, there's really no, and I've been saying this, there's really no right way or one way to do this. Now, there's perhaps more effective ways or effective means of, of doing this, and there's varying degrees and depths at which this should be done, depending upon the context. Because remember, while everyone's to be teaching as they disciple, Jesus has also given to the church teachers. This is an official gifting. And so these are people with the gift of, of teaching. And so the way that that teaching will work itself out in the body life of a church at large is going to have various degrees and purposes to it. And so this is a multifaceted project. But having said that, just at a a generic level here of of discipleship in general, there is no exact formula that you will find in the scriptures for how to carry out this principle. And we certainly have models of of how this is done. We see pictures of this all throughout the Bible, especially within the New Testament, but there's really no exact prescription that the scriptures will give. And so in light of that, based on just a, a simple survey, when you put the entire Bible together, and especially in the New Testament, you really get three different ways in which this principle of teaching is working itself out. And really, you could condense these here probably into two, and, 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 but I'll do it in three, and, and we're just going to walk through these. But notice, if you have the notes, first and foremost, it's important to understand that discipleship most effectively begins before a person is even saved. Discipleship most effectively begins before a person is saved. And you see this probably most explicitly in the context of your home as you're seeking to teach and train your children, but before they've ever made any kind of profession of faith. But you do see this, for instance, with Jesus, as he spends about three years with his disciples, and yet at the end of it, they still don't get it. In fact, remember, it's not until that great outpouring of the Spirit in the upper room and in which the Spirit of God awakens their eyes and awakens their heart to a fuller knowledge, now a right knowledge of exactly who Jesus Christ is. And of course, everything that he taught them in that period of three years. And so Jesus spent a massive amount of time with just 12 men. In fact, think about that, just 12 men. And so it was just with these few that he actually launched the entire movement of Christianity. (laughs) Again, not with a multitude of followers, but with just a few. Very counterintuitive to how we think about things here in our day. And so Jesus was very purposeful, very intimate. He was extremely intentional in what he did, what he said, what he modeled for them. There are many times in which they didn't understand at all certain things that he was doing. And he'd live it before their eyes. And as a result, they begin to ask questions time and time again. They didn't inquire and become curious as to why he was so peculiar, as, as to why he did what he did and the truth that drove those actions and words. And so while he certainly lived in a different time and a different culture and, and was doing what he was doing for a very specific purpose, namely getting this group of men ready to be the launch pad for the entire church, and actually I would say that, that Jesus' way of discipleship isn't necessarily the best model for us when you start digging into some of the details. But the underlying principle here is absolutely applicable. And that is that discipleship, and especially the teaching component of discipleship, often begins before conversion happens. In fact, we tend to think about the teaching component of discipleship as this sort of one-on-one thing where maybe we go to a coffee shop and read through a book with somebody. I don't begrudge that. It was very formative in my life. 
But that is just a very small part or aspect to the way that discipleship could look. And it's actually much more robust, much more broad than, than simply that. And so as you get around friends, as you get around neighbors, as you get around coworkers, and you get around your unbelieving family members, I think that your greatest instruction, and, and hear me on this, I think your greatest instruction is going to begin first and foremost with the life that you live. It always begins with the life that you model. And I hope you know that. I hope that you are, are controlled by that truth. I hope that we know that, that we are constantly expressing our greatest values and ultimate priorities and things like the decisions that we make. From how we spend our money to the way that we dress. Everything from the way that we speak to the way that we order our lives and, and what we choose to make time for. Everything's commuting, all, communicating always priorities and values and, and loves. And so everything, whether we know it or not, is either at all times, either adorning the gospel or distracting from the gospel, as Peter talks about. The way that you raise your children, the way that you love and serve and care and provide for your wife, the way you respect your husband, the way that you guard your speech in a culture of slander and gossip, all these things, whether we know it or not, are already communicating to an unbelieving world what we value and what we worship. Especially when it comes to the things that we sacrifice for. In fact, if you want to know what you worship and, and what your heart is most given to, or, what, or perhaps what right now you are idolizing in your life, all you have to do is ask one simple question, and that is, what are you right now sacrificing for? What keeps you up at night? What makes you tired during the day because you think about it? What are the things that you're willing to get rid of your life so this thing can fit in it? What do you sacrifice for? In fact, this is why hypocrisy, I would argue, is so easy to spot. When lives don't match mouths, the unconverted grow very skeptical to the words that we constantly keep speaking. And so in light of that, it's just kind of a, this is a practical thing here. I think one of the best ways to begin to disciple a person in all reality is by simply inviting them into your home. I really do. In fact, this is what's often called pre-evangelism, whether it's your neighbor, your coworker, whoever it might be. One of the best ways to begin discipling is by inviting them into your home. And why? Well, because it's one of the most transparent places in your entire life. And so as you invite them in, it's simply an invitation to watch. That's all it is. It's not an invitation to listen as we now have a captive audience to start preaching at. Rather, this is an invitation to watch, but as we now live it out before them. And so let them see you. Let them watch you. Let them watch the way you actually speak with, with tenderness to your wife, which is so rare, is it not? As you treat her as a treasure and a gift that that you don't deserve. Let him see the way that you speak to your husband and respond to his words with respect as you carry out his instruction for your home and your children where you do it, not with, with begrudging submission because the Bible says so, but you do it with glad submission because the Bible says so. Let him see the way that you instruct and correct and even rebuke at times your children. Let them see why you're different. Let them see the values that you hold up as of ultimate importance as you teach and, 
Give words of instruction to your children, but in their presence. Let me see these things. Let me watch these things. It's amazing the testimony and the values that we communicate by simply letting an unbeliever into a home where the lordship of Jesus Christ reigns supreme. Show hospitality. Feed good food often. In fact, do you know that one of the great themes of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, I kid you not, is that of food and table fellowship? I mean, think about this. Adam and Eve were created, but then put in a garden, a glorious garden, a garden in which God gave them the richest of foods as they would daily commune with him and walk with him. Nearly one-third of Israel's calendar was to be devoted to feasts and festivals by law where the choicest of foods were to be eaten. It's like the Passover meal was to be regularly eaten as they reminded themselves of the faithfulness of God, but it was to be done with a meal. It was instituted with a meal, food. Hospitality was to be shown to the stranger and the foreigner, but with a meal. Jesus dined often with prostitutes and tax collectors. He ate with them and drank with them. And why? Well, because he knew that breaking of bread was one of the greatest means for developing relationships and breaking down barriers. There's something profoundly unique that can happen over the breaking of, of bread. He told Zacchaeus, I am coming to your house today. Or again, they ate a meal. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with a meal. We are to remember his death and sacrifice by physically eating bread and physically drinking wine. The new heavens and the new earth, or that new Eden, that new garden, if you will, is going to culminate, but with the wedding feast of the Lamb, where we will drink what? A new wine. And so listen, when it comes to hospitality toward unbelievers, let me just suggest, don't go cheap. God doesn't go cheap toward us. It is time for the best wines, the best foods. It's why you've been enriched. Communicates care, communicates love. It provides an ample opportunity for them to relax and just watch you in one of the most transparent places in all of your life. Your home. And this is a concept that is transcultural. They'll see your values, they'll see your priorities. We talk a lot about hospitality within the church, but listen, some of our best hospitality ought to be shown to those outside of the church. To those who do not know Jesus and do not belong to this church. Again, it's why we've got so few activities and programs in this church. We want to free you as much as possible to spend your evenings and weekends, not merely with one another, but primarily with the world. This is what Jesus prayed for. Don't take them out of the world. Keep them in the world. Just protect them while they're in it from the devil who's constantly trying to thwart this mission. There's reasons for this. There's principles that, that drive this. Discipleship get, begins, but before often conversion even happens. And so an enormous amount of truth is communicated, but with our lives. The more that you look like Jesus, the more that Christ is formed in you, then the more that your life through mere action and decision will point to the lordship of Jesus Christ in all things. So number one, teaching begins often before conversion happens. But then second, teaching, and, and here's where it becomes more formal, but teaching to make disciples happens secondly in evangelism. And so this is the next step. It happens in evangelism, or in other words, teaching to convert. This is teaching to convert. You've all heard that old statement by 
St. Francis of Assisi, who said, go and preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Terrible statement. Just an awful statement. In fact, the gospel, by definition, must be good news that is spoken. Romans chapter 10 and verse 14, how then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And so the gospel, by definition, is always something that's spoken. This is a message. This is news. And I know what Francis means. He's basically talking about what I mean here with point one. But listen, there is a point in which we have to speak. We have to speak. We have to communicate the truth, the content of the gospel message. I think we've become very good at building relationships. Some of you are very gifted at hospitality. You really are. But faithfulness to the mission means that at some point we have to speak. We have to speak. But the challenge with that, as you know, and some of you have found out, is that the gospel is inherently offensive, is it not? (laughs) It inherently offends people. And because built into the very message of the gospel is the truth that people are sinners and therefore need salvation from that sin. They need a redeemer. They need to be pardoned personally from the guilt of their sin before a righteous and a holy God, a God who will judge in perfect justice. Exodus 34 and verse 7, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, forgives transgression, forgives sin, and yet, and this is key, and yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And so we love that first part, we really do. That is the grace of God. We celebrate that. But if we're going to be faithful to the full message of the gospel, then we have to speak of this final part as well. God is a God who is just, and he will therefore judge, listen, in perfect justice. And so if we're to speak the gospel with faithfulness and clarity, which again, the gospel by definition simply means good news. That's what the term means. But if we're to speak the good news with faithfulness, it therefore implies that we have to faithfully first give the bad news. In fact, what makes good news good news is that it's up and against the backdrop of some pretty bad news, right? And so at some point, we have to stick in that knife. And here's what I mean by the fact that there is no tactic, there is no technique, there is no amount of packaging of this message that will somehow remove the sting of its message At some point, we have to tell them that they are dead in their sins, Ephesians chapter 2. They are separated from God. Their sin has separated them from their creator. And so unless they admit that sin, unless they confess that sin and acknowledge that sin, where there's nothing they can do for that sin except cast themselves at the foot of the cross, the cross of Christ paid the full penalty of their sin, And that in Christ, in Christ alone, there is complete forgiveness. There is that full outpouring of God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, where he will never reject a needy sinner who's come to find forgiveness from even the worst of sin. Listen, you cannot get to that part of the good news unless you first speak of the bad news. And so at some point, we have to speak. We have to give this full gospel. And so it's at this point then, it's at this second tier in which you've, you've started that relationship, you've earned their trust, you've earned maybe the right to speak the gospel into their life, that the second component now of teaching comes into play. And what we're teaching here is the means of salvation. 
You are speaking the very message of the gospel. And so this is evangelism. This is evangelism. So it's at this point then in which if we're faithful to the, the great commission cause that we need to become fluent with the gospel. We have to develop gospel fluency. And this happens in many ways and in many contexts, but we need to become skilled, listen, at communicating the actual content of this gospel. In fact, I'm amazed at how many Christians who truly know the gospel, truly believe the gospel, truly love it with all their heart, mind, strength, and soul are really, really, really bad at communicating it. <laughs> in fact, when I first started working at CareNet, which is a nonprofit for families and at-risk mothers for pregnancy, I had multiple opportunities throughout the week. It was pretty wild. I had multiple opportunities throughout the week to be constantly speaking the gospel to all kinds of people. And I was giving it all the time. And yet it was in those very first weeks that I discovered how bad I was at doing this. It was really bad. And it was very revealing to me because at this point I had my MDiv. I had taken evangelism courses. I had done the role playing. I had done everything I needed to do, but I was really bad at communicating the gospel. But what I discovered is that the more that I did it, then the more skilled, because it is a skill, the more skilled I became at doing it. Everything from being able to give a 30-second presentation to maybe a five-minute presentation to being able to even naturally weave it in throughout the course of a conversation. This is all skill. There are multiple ways and a myriad of tactics to do this. But, but in light of that, the question for all of us then as individuals, and here's the question for you, and I really want you to think about it, is could you right now do that? Could you right now communicate succinctly the gospel message? Could you right now communicate the gospel as you weave it in throughout a conversation with an unbeliever? who's hostile at the words you're about to say. Do you have that skill? Do you have that ability? I know you all have the knowledge of the gospel. Listen, being skilled at communicating the gospel is an entirely different animal. And what I realized is the reason I was so bad at it is because I rarely did it, to my shame. But if we're going to make disciples and if we're going to be used by Christ to build his church and bring his people in through the message of the gospel, then we've got to become skilled at speaking this gospel. It takes time, it takes practice, it takes at times humility as we try but then fail and get the strange looks as we make fools of ourselves but for the sake of Jesus. And so this is the second step. This is that second kind of teaching that's necessary to create disciples and really, this one and the, the first one could be combined into one where the whole thing could just be labeled as evangelism, maybe the first one pre-evangelism, if you want a title for it. But in any case, at some point, we have to speak the gospel. We have to articulate the message of, of Jesus Christ. We have to use our words. We have to teach this truth. We have to talk about sin. We have to talk about the na saving nature of Jesus Christ's cross work. We have to speak of the resurrection. We have to speak of the ascension. We have to speak of his bodily return while he will come and judge both the living and the dead. And so this is our task. This is part of the teaching mandate of this discipleship process. And then the third component or this third category of teaching to make disciples is that we're then to teach the full counsel of God. I already mentioned something on this, but we're then to teach the full counsel of God. In other words, we're to teach the fullness of Scripture and the fullness of God's revelation, but for the explicit purpose of seeing Christ formed in those who profess him as Lord. And so this is that ongoing teaching now of a convert, of, of a person who now professes Jesus Christ as Lord. This is that continual practice of instructing a person in, in a right understanding of the Scriptures. 
And so at first it's teaching them new truths to where they're seeing brand new things all the time. But then at some point as they grow and become mature in the faith and, and have been taught and instructed in that counsel of God, they're now no longer being instructed in new things per se, but simply being reminded of the things that they already know, but the things that all of us are so prone to forget. In fact, it is always a joyful thing to just watch a person at times who's new to the faith or maybe just untaught in the faith who hasn't been instructed and all of a sudden they come into good teaching and biblical teaching and then you just watch them grow almost exponentially overnight in a very short period of time. And why? Why is that the case? Well, because they've already got everything present that they need. They've got a converted heart, a willing heart. They possess the very spirit of God abiding within them. And so all that they need now is the fuel and, and the food that's necessary to grow, which of course is always going to be the word of God, is, is the word that ignites that truth. And so at first they're learning the big doctrines of the faith, coming into a fuller understanding of the nature and the person and the character and the purposes of God. Their understanding of God's becoming far richer, far more grounded. They're seeing the depths of God's word. And, and so they're now learning things like words and phrases and clauses, but all of a sudden it's thrilling to them. Like a preposition is the greatest thing in the world. Why? Well, because as they learn the word and are instructed in this word, they're now encountering in a very rich way for the first time the depths of their God. They're a person who takes the truth that's been taught and now begins to apply. They analyze their life week after week in light of this truth and learn where it is that they must now still conform to this truth. Their hatred for sin grows deeper. Their love for the gospel in Christ grows richer. Their thankfulness to the Father is greater. Their walk with the Spirit is purer. So this is a kind of teaching that has the explicit goal of, again, conforming a person into the image of Jesus. It's no longer a teaching to convert, but a teaching now to sanctify. It is to grow a person gradually into his image. And so these are very different things, very different parts or components to this teaching mandate of Jesus Christ. And so again, there, there's three categories here, maybe two if you want to combine the first and the second under this, this title of evangelism. But what I want to say about this, and I think it's very important, is that all of us are just, and this is important to hear, all of us are just going to be better at certain aspects of this than others. We just will. Some are very hospitable. They just have that tremendous gift of being able to connect with people and meet people and quickly befriend people. They can start genuine relationships with them. Others are very good, though, at articulating the gospel. They have a phenomenal skill, it seems, at being able to naturally weave this thing in throughout a conversation. And yet others have a mind to be able to teach. God has given them the gift of being able to open up, it seems, any portion of Scripture. They have an understanding, a discernment, a skill in the Scriptures, and be able to make that which seems so confusing all of a sudden clear. Light bulbs go on, people's heads nod when they talk. And so some people are just more gifted at this ongoing aspect of teaching. But in light of all that, let me just say, is this not the beauty of the body of Christ? This is the design of the church. All of us come together with various skill sets, various giftings, and all of us play our part. We just play our part. In fact, it is a very rare person who's got the skill and the gifting in all three of these categories. Even Paul, the gifted apostle, who I think probably exercised every single gift of the Holy Spirit. Even Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that Paul plants, Apollos waters, God gives the growth. 
God gives the growth. Paul was the evangelist. Paul was the church planner. Apollos was in that orator and that very gifted preacher who could then do that ongoing work of teaching the people into the maturity of Jesus Christ. And then ultimately, of course, God is the moving cause behind it all. And so this is the beauty of the church. In fact, this is why I just keep saying over and over again that mission is done best in community. Missio Dei Fellowship, the mission of God together. Mission is done best in community as everyone plays their parts. They link their arms. Everyone's on mission together to reach the lost, convert the chosen, sanctify the church. And so all of us should be working, I would still argue, in all three of these categories at some level. Remember, Paul, in fact, commands Timothy, the pastor and the preacher, to still do the work of an evangelist, something he wasn't prone to doing. Even though his gifting was more in the area of, of teaching, and pastoring, Paul exhorts him to be faithful in another. And so all of us should be working in some capacity, I think, in all three of these categories. But I want to encourage you this morning by saying that some of us are just going to be more gifted in certain areas than others. So do not be discouraged. Do not be discouraged. I think all of us can just take a breath that we all don't have the same gifting. We can thank God that he has brought multiple giftings together, but to accomplish one mission in this city and so this is what we do. This is what we're to be about. What would it look like if everyone linked arms in this church, but to fill out each other's weaknesses? As we all head in the same direction on mission, what would it look like? What could this church accomplish if that kind of intentionality and, and unity and effort took place? What could your small groups accomplish? What could your neighborhood efforts accomplish? For those of you who live near each other and you want to mobilize for the sake of mission in your neighborhood, what would it look like for a skilled evangelist to link arms with a person gifted in the art of hospitality? As you then quote the entire process in, in prayer together and ask God to just do something significant. How could he not bless that? Why would he not bless that? This is his strategy. This is his method. Why would he deny himself as, as we ask him to bless our faithfulness in obedience to his command? And so our time here is, is up, but this is the idea of teaching to make disciples. There's that pre-evangelism where you're teaching with your life. There's evangelism where you're explicitly sharing the gospel. And then there's that ongoing teaching where you're taking a converted person who now believes the gospel and wants to follow Jesus Christ and you bring the entire counsel of God, the full word of God to bear on their life for the purpose of seeing Christ formed in them. But this is the method. This is the strategy that Jesus has for expanding his kingdom. He says, go, baptize, teach. That's the great commission. That is the approved strategy. And in fact, and hear me on this, the only method that he will bless. This is the only thing he'll bless. And so let me just end here by asking this question. And it's a question that I've been thinking about through this entire process over the past few weeks. But the question is, what does it mean what does it mean to be a mature Christian? What does it mean to be one for whom Christ right now has been formed in you? Listen, it is not merely to know doctrine and to hold the right teaching and right understanding of truth. It is not merely to attend a church or to be busy doing religious activities. It is not merely the desire to gather with one another and with other Christians and talk about Christian things, debate doctrine. It's not to be 
about the process growing merely in personal holiness and putting off your personal sin. To be a mature Christian does not mean merely character improvement and learning to control things like your tongue and your anger and gain self-control and gain discipline. It is not merely to love your wife, to respect your husband, to raise your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. It is not to be thought good of by your neighbors and your coworkers and the various people that you interact with throughout the week. And while all those things are good, they're right, they're necessary for the Christian, they're absolutely vital to what it means to be a Christian. But listen, the mark of a mature Christian, and this is how we analyze maturity at this church, just so you know, because it is the overwhelming cause, call of Jesus Christ and the thing that makes you look most like him but the mark of a mature Christian is a Christian who is about the task of making disciples. And not just disciples, but disciple-making disciples. And so Matt keeps asking these questions in his sermons, and so I just want to lay this one out before you again. He'll probably bring it up again. But in light of that truth, in light of that truth, so who right now are our disciples? Where are they? Who are your disciples? I just want us to think about that. This is the passion of Jesus. This is why he has left us. This is why you're here. This is why we exist on this earth. You've been sovereignly left here, providentially placed, uniquely gifted. And while discipleship is going to look a little bit different in each of our contexts, in each of our lives, listen, the goal and the mandate for every single one of us as followers of Jesus Christ is the exact same thing. We are commissioned to glorify God by making disciples who then go back into the world and make disciples. This is Jesus' prayer, John chapter 17. Leave them, intentionally leave them in the world. This is the mandate for his church. This is his desire. If you call yourself a Christian, if you identify yourself as one who's placed yourself under the lordship of, of Jesus Christ, this is his will for your life. This is his will for your life. It's very clear, very definitive. And so in light of that, let me just end here by quickly reminding us that we must never forget that he is always and forever with us in this task, verse 20. We must remember that he has not left us. He's not abandoned us. He's not left us as orphans as he talks about. He has given us his spirit. He's empowered us with the abiding presence through his spirit. And so he's given to both you and me everything that we might need for faithfulness to this mission. It just requires faith. And so my final word to you this morning is simply this. May we think on these things. May we saturate all of this in prayer and then be a church made up of individuals who can so love the world that we are willing to forsake whatever it is that we might have to say, forsake, but for the sake of the spread of this mission, bringing the gospel, seeing sinners redeemed, growing them in Christ, and setting them free to do the exact same thing until they stand before their maker and their king. So may this be our passion, and may this be what we desire to do in these days. Let's pray together. And so Father, I do pray that we'd be faithful. I pray that this would be the experience for every single one of us. May we not walk out this morning, as I admit, it's so easy to do in my own mind, and that is to think that these things apply to somebody else. 
May we thoughtfully reflect on this and ask of you to help us accurately apply these things by the power of your Holy Spirit. May we love this mandate. May we love even the prospect of being counted worthy to do something profound for the cause of the kingdom. Even at great cost to ourselves. May you use these people in this particular church to accomplish exactly what you desire to accomplish within our context and in this community. As I prayed over the past few weeks, may you burden the heart of many here this morning in this very room to live in a state of restlessness, to live in a state of holy discontentment until you are pleased and they see themselves being used by you in even greater ways. So shape us and fashion us, I pray, into the people that you desire. Make us a people ready to serve, ready to be used by you in the very short time that you've given us on this earth. May this be the unifying desire of our hearts as your church. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.